I have always felt like I needed to know much more about William Shakespeare, uh, such an important figure in history, and yet a, a surprisingly elusive figure about whom we actually don't know as much as you might think. Uh, and actually, if one does careful study, there's actually uh, an amazing amount which, in fact, we can know about Shakespeare if we can better understand the world and the times in which he lived. That's essentially what uh, James Shapiro has done. He's a professor at Columbia University in New York City and uh, the author of uh, several books about Shakespeare and the theater, and most recently, a marvelous new book called A Year in the Life of William Shakespeare, 1599, in which he gives us a, a very clear sense of what was going on in Britain at this moment uh, in its history. And not just within the arts and not just within the world of theater, but uh, politically what was happening at this point in time, what people in the streets of London were talking about, worrying about. And uh, it is a, a fascinating tapestry which has been woven in this book, which is published by HarperCollins. And I am indeed excited to uh, speak with uh, James Shapiro for the next few minutes about his book, again called A Year in the Life of William Shakespeare. James Shapiro, we welcome you to The Morning Show. I'm delighted to be speaking with you. Uh, give our listeners a little bit of a sense of, of what I touched upon at the top of that introduction, namely that that for someone who is so famous, uh, how actually we know not as much about William Shakespeare and the specifics of his life and career as we might assume we do. It's a funny question in certain ways because we do know a lot about the years in which he was working in London from sometime around 1590 until about 1614, roughly a quarter century. We know very little about his first 25 years, other than he was born in 1564 and baptized. He married at the age of 18 and had three children. That's really all that we know for sure about his earliest years. So when you write a, a cradle-to-grave biography of Shakespeare, almost inevitably you have to create a backstory about how Shakespeare got from Stratford to London and what motivated him, what crises, spiritual, familial, drove him there and and the rest. And that has made people skeptical uh, about how much we can and do know about Shakespeare. Once he arrives in London and is an active and, and, uh, and quite busy poet and playwright and uh, uh, figure playing both uh, in public and at court, there are lots of records about him. And reflecting on this and having taught Shakespeare uh, for almost all my adult life, I thought, why not go back and focus on a slice of life uh, intensely on a period of great creativity, a period where Shakespeare went from one creative level to the next, and tell that story, tell a, a year in the life of Shakespeare, rather than trying to do everything from speculate about what he was like as a child to what he was like after he retired from the stage. And it, it actually took me about 15 years of research. That's the downside of this of this quest, that it, it takes really a very long time to read everything written in uh, a given year or written about a given year and really uh, think hard about what Shakespeare wrote in the course of, of this year in particular, 1599. Well, and, and uh, you're already touching on an important question, which is the fact that 
you did not arbitrarily choose the year 1599, but you chose it because, uh, in your words in the introduction or the preface, uh, by looking at this year, we can better answer the question of how Shakespeare became Shakespeare. Uh, that's true. Uh, there are a number of things that were really appealing to me about 1599, uh, not least of which was this was the year in which the Globe Theater was built, uh, or actually not built, but rebuilt out of the uh, frame of the theater Shakespeare's company used to uh, perform at. It was called the theater, and they had lost their lease at the theater, and they still owned the structure itself. So at the very end of 1598, Shakespeare's company went to the side of their old playhouse armed with uh, carpenters, and they took apart the building, packed it up, shipped it over the Thames, and it rose as the Globe Theater later that year. So this, this is a year in which Shakespeare became part owner in the theater, uh, in which he performed in a company where he was uh, a shareholder as well. So this year was both uh, a wonderful year creatively for Shakespeare, and scholars know that. Uh, and haven't really spent enough time trying to figure out how Shakespeare really moved from writing a play like, say, Mary Wise of Windsor to, to Hamlet. What, what accounted for that uh, really creative explosion in his work or spurt? And I, I wanted to deal with that. It's not to say that there aren't other great moments uh, in Shakespeare's creative life, 1605, 1606, when he wrote Lear and Macbeth and started Antony and Cleopatra is, is a good time. Uh, even a little bit earlier, 1595 or so, is also a very exciting time. But in a sense, 1599 is the Mount Everest uh, uh, for Shakespeare scholars who, who try to understand how, how you go about creating a play like Hamlet when there was nothing like it uh, out there at the time. Right. This is when he first begins to touch his, his true greatness. I mean, in a sense, creatively, Shakespeare turns a corner in this uh, important year. Yeah, and you can really you can really feel it. it. It's not to diminish the accomplishment of plays like Henry IV or Richard II or Richard III or Romeo and Juliet, which are really wonderful plays. The, one of the things that, that got me going on this book was the, the movie Shakespeare in Love, which I really enjoyed, and which is a terrific movie, in part because it asked a great question, which was, how do you go from writing Two Gentlemen of Verona to a play as inspired as Romeo and Juliet. And the answer in the movie was, you fall in love with a cross-dressed Gwyneth Paltrow. And I didn't have an easy answer like that. But <laughs> I, I, I wanted to figure out, how do you go from Romeo and Juliet to Hamlet? And that's a different kind of pursuit. Let me ask you about the way in which uh, many scholars have studied Shakespeare and discussed him. This is something else which is very interesting in your preface. You talk about uh, how many have chosen to view Shakespeare as a poet who transcended his age. People have lifted him out of time and, and place uh, uh, in an effort, I suppose, to, to, uh, to, to, to uh, canonize him, to, to, to um, uh, shine a light on his greatness. And you're saying that, uh, that there are actually a couple of different reasons why scholars have been inclined to do that. And they seem very contradictory on, on the surface. You say it's because too, we know too much and we know too little about the times in which Shakespeare lived. Explain what you're talking about sure. there. Uh, one of the greatest and most influential critics uh, in the English literary tradition, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, also a great poet, spoke of Shakespeare uh, uh, as if he were from another planet. And I think the desire to praise or almost overpraise Shakespeare has meant that we think of him 
as timeless and his works no longer rooted in the moment of their conception. And as a result, we have lost uh, touch with what fueled Shakespeare's imagination. And, and that's very dangerous, in a sense, because that information exists. What information doesn't exist is who Shakespeare really loved, what he thought of his wife, whether he mourned for his son's death. Those are the questions we know too little about. Had, had antiquarians in the 17th century bothered to speak with uh, Shakespeare's daughter, who survived uh, uh, almost a half century after her father, uh, and, and spoken to her about what kind of man Shakespeare was, we would have had answers to some of those questions. But they still really wouldn't answer the question of what was going on during Shakespeare's creative life around him, not just in his personal life, but in London, in England, the political scene, the, the social changes, the religious crises of the age that shaped his imagination and that drove audiences to see his plays. Uh, you, you mentioned the fact that, uh, that Shakespeare left behind neither letters nor diaries. And, and had he left that kind of legacy behind him, uh, many of these kind of questions uh, might have been answered, some of these mysteries solved. You know, it's a, it's a, that's certainly true. And, uh, but uh, your listeners should also know almost no one kept diaries in Shakespeare's day. Almost no one wrote personal essays uh, in Shakespeare's day. It was a different culture, and I think we make a mistake in imagining that Shakespeare was like us. And I think a lot of biographers make a mistake of recreating Shakespeare in our own image. Mm. People 400 years ago were very different. I'm so glad you said that, because this is one of the most in intriguing moments in, 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 in the introduction when you say, uh, cradle-to-grave biographers of Shakespeare tend to assume that what makes people who they are now made people who they were then. And what you're suggesting is that human beings were shaped in, in different ways in Shakespeare's time, that, that, that they were powerfully affected by things that, that perhaps would not affect us today, or, or certainly not in the same way why we call them pre-modern or early modern. Shakespeare's age was on the cusp of modernity, but it wasn't modern. Just take the life cycle for a good example of that. Children in their first year were wrapped in cotton, swaddled, and hung on a hook so that dogs would nibble at them or the kids would crawl into the fire. They were breastfed by strangers. They were, in their early years, uh, shipped out to work in other people's households. Uh, people might have reached sexual maturity at, at 15, but they didn't marry until their mid-20s, and they died in their mid-40s on the average. So every aspect of life, including mandatory church services on Sunday, was different. And uh, uh, early modern people have a lot in common with us, but not everything in common with us. And uh, even the fact that they didn't keep diaries, that they didn't keep journals, tells us something about how different their interior space was, their emotional lives might have been. We just don't know. And it's very dangerous to leap to the assumption that Shakespeare was like us or like we want him to be. You say that uh, the Shakespeare who emerges in these pages is less a Shakespeare in love than a Shakespeare at work. I guess that mm -hmm. speaks to one of those points of, of frustration for you and others who who want to know as much as they can about Shakespeare, that there is a, a real limit to just how much we can step inside his skin. And not only that, there's a real limit to how much time Shakespeare had free. You know, we like to think of the artist 
scribbling with that quill in the, in the, in the uh, uh, attic somehow. Shakespeare spent his day, year in, year out, for, for much of his creative life, uh, maybe a quarter century. He spent his mornings rehearsing that day's play because it wasn't Cats now and forever in the Elizabethan theater. His company and every company changed the play they were staging every day. And since Shakespeare was an actor as well as the playwright in his company, he acted every day, which meant rehearsing that play in the morning, stopping for lunch, and performing that day's play in the afternoon. And that left him precious little time after dinner, uh, really uh, probably by candlelight late into the night, to read as much as he read and then to write as much as he wrote. So when I speak of Shakespeare at work, if Shakespeare had affairs uh, and sexual encounters with men, women, or both during this time, it's, it's a testament to his energy because there was not a lot of time left over in, in his working day for that. Well, especially at this point in time, as you say, when he was both actor and, uh, and in a sense sort of a co-owner of this theater. I mean, so much of his life had to be absorbed by this unprecedented uh, amount of responsibility let alone lawsuits he was pursuing uh, for his family and his father, pursuing a coat of arms. He was a businessman, although we tend not to speak of that uh, in, in, in approving terms. And uh, he was speculating in uh, commodities. He was buying real estate. So he was a very complicated and very hardworking guy. We tend not to think of artists in those ways. Mm. Speaking of hardworking, you've already mentioned that this book was 15 years in the making. Uh, give us just some sense, if you would, of of where you had to go and through what sorts of boxes you had to sift to uh, to find the the enormous wealth of information and insight which is is part of this book. Sure, I should say that the book almost uh, can be traced back to my experience in high school and junior high of Shakespeare, where I hated Shakespeare and I was completely turned off to Shakespeare by my teachers. So. In a certain sense, my career is driven by uh, what it felt like to feel stupid and confused reading Shakespeare. And I never even took a college course in Shakespeare. It was only after that that I became academically interested in Shakespeare. I'd see as many productions as I could, and I'd run over every summer after quitting some job as a messenger or salesman uh, to, to London in my teens and early 20s to, um, to see as many plays at the RSC or the National Theater were putting on of Shakespeare's. Uh, corpus. So this, in a sense, was rooted in that experience and in a desire to to know what I didn't know about this culture. And that meant going to a handful of archives that really have uh, uh, vast wealth of uh, really untapped materials. One is the uh, Huntington Library in, in, in beautiful San Marino, California, Another is the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C., right near the Capitol. And, of course, the archives in England, the, the British Library, the, uh, the Bodleian in Oxford, the Cambridge Library, and the, the Workshire Archives and the, the Stratford Archives also. So it, it, it took a while since I was teaching full-time during these years, and I was writing other books as well, to, to dig up all the stuff that I, that I was able to dig up and... Uh, uh, and do it responsibly. And at a certain point, you have to say, uh, I have to stop and, and finish writing the book. <laughs> the book we're talking about is A Year in the Life of William Shakespeare, 1599, and we're speaking with its author, James Shapiro. 
you talk about how this was a moment just as uh, the theater was being dismantled and uh, the globe uh, was about to be uh, constructed from its timbers. You talk about Shakespeare being at a professional crossroads, that he had enjoyed a spurt of great creativity uh, earlier uh, in the decade, but uh, a creative surge that had diminished. You talk about how Shakespeare was uh, painfully aware that he had nearly exhausted the rich veins of romantic comedy and English history. Uh, It sounds like this was a moment in time when Shakespeare needed to find new things to write about. You know, he didn't need to find. He chose to find. Shakespeare Mm. could have knocked out sequels for the next 20 years. He could have easily have done kind of Rocky II, Rocky III, Rocky IV, the the Henry IV part one through seven, I suppose, and then do prequels and and the like, or or remake his extremely popular romantic comedies again and again and again. More Much Ado's, more Love's Labor's Won and Love's Labor's Lost. He was restless. He did not want to reproduce the same kind of work, however popular, however uh, uh, successful in the playhouse these plays were. And I think that's one measure of his greatness, his refusal to repeat himself. And he decided uh, at this time to, in a sense, not only change what he was writing, but change what he was reading. Hmm. And one of the things that I talk about in the book is how he put down uh, the, the big folio volume that had uh, consumed him for the first decade of his of his career, Hollinshed's Chronicles of England, Scotland, and, and Wales, and Ireland, and, and pick up instead uh, a new book, a book that had been uh, published by a friend of his uh, from Stratford, who was also in London, named Richard Field. And that book was Plutarch's Lives of the Greeks and Romans. It was, let's say, more history, less history and more biography. And it would really lead him to write Julius Caesar in this year and in future years, Antony, Cleopatra, and Coriolanus. And, but it really directed him towards focusing more on character and less on history, let's just say. Hmm. Uh, but he also wanted to go back and rewrite plays that had been on the boards when he had first come to London, plays about Henry V, plays uh, like Hamlet. Uh, and that's another thing that he had to do. In order to go forward, in other words, he had to go back a little bit and remake that past. You talked, too, about how the the this uh, the opening of a new theater and, and, and Shakespeare becoming, in effect, uh, one of its co-owners uh, offered him a, a great opportunity for, for redirecting his art. Um, you say the Globe offered Shakespeare a fresh start, the possibility of writing for a new set of playgoers with as yet unhardened expectations, unlike those who had been frequenting the theater and the curtain for so many years. I mean, and it's interesting. I mean, that's obviously a, a reality which is with us to this day, uh, that writers uh, find themselves thinking about the expectations of, of their audiences, and not just playwrights, but uh, musicians of every ilk. And, and you have to. And you can imagine the pressure on Shakespeare from his fellow shareholders, the actors who own the company with him, uh, saying, we have this new theater. It's, it's just a stone's throw away from our rivals, the Admiral's men playing at the Rose. You need to produce some great plays pretty quickly, or we're not going to carry our audience with us. And Shakespeare wrote uh, a lot this year, uh, and he wrote at a spectacular level, in part, I, I suspect, because of the pressure of writing both comedies and tragedies 
uh, for this new theater that would enthrall audiences and, and make the globe part of their lives. I'd like to have you uh, expound on, on an interesting observation you make, which is that although this is obviously a very rich uh, era in terms of theater in London, I mean, that theater was such an important part of so many people's lives, but you say that the civic leaders of London uh, actually had grave misgivings about the theater, and there was uh, a very uneasy relationship uh, between, for instance, the playwrights of the day uh, and the government. Tell us more about that and, and, and what, where that was coming from. Sure. Um, you know, it's very, uh, it's very interesting and, 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 and complicated, but not too complicated. Uh, city fathers, uh, the rich burghers of London, didn't like theaters because they were a place where too many people gathered. They were often uh, places where plague was spread or there was violence associated with the theaters. So there was uh, a suspicion of big crowds assembling. So what the, the theater community did was planted the theaters just outside the bounds, the formal bounds of the city, north, the northern suburbs and across the river in Southwark. And they also needed the protection of aristocratic patrons, which is why Shakespeare's company, though owned and run by a group of actors, uh, was called the Chamberlain's Men. And then when King James came to power in 1603, they were called the King's Men after that. So that they had to have a bit of royal protection to protect them against the civil authorities. Plays were also censored. Shakespeare had to walk a careful line between what you could and could not get away with. Uh, in the late 1590s, there was a theater that opened up called The Swan, reportedly the most beautiful theater in London, and seditious plays, including one called The Isle of Dogs, which doesn't survive, was, was staged there. The government didn't like it and said there'll be no permanent company playing at The Swan from here on in, and that message got out. So Shakespeare had to write plays that engaged the political and social curiosity of his audiences while not stepping over that line. And, and for me, that's another sign of his genius, because Marlowe was assassinated, Kidd, Rack, Johnson, Chapman, and others imprisoned. Shakespeare never suffered uh, that kind of direct government punishment or scrutiny. Well, yes, because as you say, the punishment for overstepping the bounds of the acceptable was severe. And, and it's, it's important for us to know that, because that, that helps us appreciate all the more the fact that Shakespeare did not choose what would have been the easier safer path of just recycling what he had already written, uh, he was willing to take some gambles. And, and he knew that he had to, because if he didn't, he'd lose his audience, because other playwrights were more than willing to go out on that limb. And uh, there's always this tension between uh, writing popular stuff and pushing your audience a bit too far. And uh, I think that Shakespeare pushed his audience, certainly in As You Like It, certainly in Hamlet, further than they were used to being pushed. And, and as you like it, it, it didn't quite succeed. In Hamlet, it succeeded brilliantly. Let's talk about a couple other realities in England at this moment in time. One of them is that it is an interesting moment in time in terms of chivalry and the culture of chivalry, something which was beginning to fade from the scene. Tell our listeners more about that. Sure. Chivalry was fraying. You know, there are a lot of books that celebrate the chivalric past, but the culture of knighthood was a threat to uh, royalty, and Queen Elizabeth did her best not to knight 
many of her followers and keep that number small and in control. She knew well enough from the example of English history that the greatest threat to her throne came not from outside of her kingdom, but from those trying to usurp her throne from within. One of the great events of this year, really, uh, that cast its shadow over all of 1599, was uh, wrapped up with this question of chivalry and almost accounts for the, the death of chivalry uh, uh, or the, the, the severe decline of it. And that has to do with a war in Ireland. England had been settling in Ireland, or the English had been settling in Ireland for centuries, but the pace of really the colonization of Ireland had picked up in Elizabeth's reign. And the Irish uh, finally uh, were successful in attacking the English army and English communities that had appropriated Irish land. And in 1599, Queen Elizabeth knew that in order to protect her subjects living in Ireland, she had to send an army into Ireland. And when I began this book 15 years ago, I had no idea that I'd be uh, writing a book about an attempt to send an army that was ill-equipped and expensive to fight an insurgency that proved far more uh, sophisticated and adept in, in attacking those invading uh, their what they believed was their country. Hmm. Uh, but that's really what happened in this year. And it's a, it was a disastrous military campaign. Shakespeare alludes to it explicitly in Henry V when he talks about their hope the Londoner's hope, his audience's hope, that the Earl of Essex, the general of our gracious empress, Queen Elizabeth, will come home from Ireland with rebellion broached on his sword. In fact, Essex, who did very little against the Irish and knighted as many followers as he could, harbored hopes of coming back from Ireland, leading an army to, uh, uh, to the court and in an attempted, uh, attempt to shake up the uh, political order. He was talked out of that by his friends. Uh, two years later, he actually did mount... Uh, uh, a coup, which was dis uh, disastrous, as equally disastrous as his military campaign. But the, the, the breakdown of uh, uh, this uh, campaign in Ireland uh, really colors everything going on in this year, up to and including uh, Hamlet. You mentioned, by the way, that, that, that Queen Elizabeth had a lot to do with the troubles uh, with, with this Irish campaign. You, you called her Irish policies uh, characterized by incoherence, and neglect. Queen Elizabeth was brilliant politically, but she was also uh, a skinflint and did not want to spend money. She didn't have a standing army, and when recruits were dragged off the street, because that's the way you get 16,000 men, every man from 16 to 60 could be conscripted unless he had a kind of political connection, as, say, Shakespeare and his company who played at court did. But uh, th these wars were not popular. Queen Elizabeth was not willing to spend enough to really deal with the problems. She wanted problems to go away. And she was most formidable in personal encounters. She was smarter than everybody around her. She had uh, the skills of a real political survivor. But uh, she was not good at managing the wars, and it bled the country slowly. You talk, too, about how hanging over so much of all of this was kind of the, the question of what next for Queen Elizabeth. Uh, how much longer she was going to reign, that, that kind of thing. What are we talking about in terms of the year 1599? How long had she been queen? She had been queen since 1558, six years before Shakespeare was born. It's the only queen most everybody in the country had known. And yet she was the virgin queen. She had no designated heir to the throne. 
you were not allowed to write about who would succeed her. You were not allowed to talk about it. This was a punishable offense. And everybody waited every day as rumors spread, oh, the queen is sick, the queen is dying, the queen is... Uh, nobody knew. And there was tremendous anxiety. And it's no surprise that so many of Shakespeare's plays and those of his contemporaries are plays about succession. A play like Hamlet, it's about how a foreign ruler comes in at the end to take over the country. Play after play dealt with this because this was a barely suppressed uh, anxiety in the culture. They didn't know if a Catholic prince would come into the country or a Protestant one. It affected every aspect of their lives. As it turned out, King James VI of Scotland would come in uh, and rule over England from 1603 on, but nobody knew that for a fact. And in fact, there were rumors in 1599 that an impatient King James was ready to join forces with the Spanish to invade England. So uh, history looks a lot different in retrospect. What I, what I try to create in this book is the day-to-day experience of uh, the fears, the hopes, the rumors, rather than what history books tell us what actually happened. A, g- a good example of that is in the summer of 1599, in July, just when the Globe Theater was finished, when they're finishing the thatching, finishing the painting of the stage and all, a threat a rumor of a threat of a Spanish armada once again invading England took over the country. And the Queen called for 30,000 troops to come down to protect London, 3,000 to stand around her personally and protect her person. And the country was in a panic. Now, it turned out, as contemporaries call it, to be an invisible armada rather than the invincible armada of 1558, uh, 1588. But th- this is the kind of stuff that uh, a Something else going on at this moment in time uh, uh, is, is lodged a little more in the religious realm. You say Shakespeare was born into an England poised between worlds. You say while the Elizabethans didn't suffer the bloody religious wars that racked much of the continent, its reformations meant, among other things, a stripping away of altars, paintings, ceremonies, vestments, sacramental rituals, and beloved holidays. Uh, and you say then, for reformers seeking to purify a church they saw encrusted with idolatry, this made good sense. But in practice, it also left a tear in the fabric of daily life. If one is interested in understanding the daily life of people in this time, this is one of the things we, we need to notice. It's very important. And when a lot of critics or scholars talk about Catholicism or Protestantism in Shakespeare's day, it's as if they're talking about Red Sox fans and Yankee fans, a clean-cut distinction or a clear-cut distinction. Between the 1530s and the 1590s, or even 15, late 1550s, England went from Catholic to Protestant to even more Protestant to Catholic and back to Protestant again. So everything was in turmoil. Everybody, including Elizabeth, and no doubt Shakespeare, longed for certain parts of old Catholic ritual that Protestantism did not embrace and at the same time were connected to the new state religion, which put more emphasis on the word than on uh, other symbolic practices that Catholicism offered, including the holiday season. So 
this was a culture in turmoil and transformation. And one of the things that theater did was it filled that vacuum left by the loss of uh, a lot of Catholic ritual that offered a different kind of spectacle and ritual and splendor, uh, but no less indebted to the word. So uh, it's, it's something that scholars right now are turning their attention to after a decade or two of just looking at a, a narrow set of concerns of race and class and gender, which are important, but religion is the most important thing shaping Shakespeare's culture and the politics as well as the spiritual lives of, of uh, Elizabethans. I want to finish by asking you just a question or two about Hamlet, which of course is really in, in many respects the artistic culmination of this year. Uh, one of the things you do in your book is you help us understand how the play Hamlet came into being, and you start one chapter with this uh, uh, rather uh, uh, incredible statement. In terms of plot, Hamlet is Shakespeare's least original play. And, of course, you go on to explain what you're, what you're saying there, that Shakespeare was drawing upon other sources quite heavily, but uh, brought his genius to bear and turned it into something truly incredible. You know, what, what Shakespeare's company did with their old theater, strip it apart and make something new out of the, the structure itself, the beams, is exactly what he did to Hamlet. He took an old play that was already old, also called Hamlet, in, in the 1580s, and he remade it. He transformed it utterly while keeping the plot, keeping the characters. The soliloquies are all Shakespeare's. The, what he does, the language is Shakespeare's, but his audience would have been able to follow this brilliant play in part because they knew the outline of that story, which is not. Shakespeare was never interested in creating stories. He was interested in transforming them and making them fresh and uh, inimitable. One of the ways he did that, of course, is in the words he chose. And you talk about how uh, just looking at, at, at the plain old numbers, it's incredible what Shakespeare did with words in Hamlet, with new words, which helped make this sound like a play that, that people had never heard the likes of before. You know, we, we kid around today about the, the playgoer who goes to see Hamlet uh, at, the, at the behest of friends and comes back and says, I liked it a lot, but it was full of cliches. These weren't cliches. Shakespeare's inventing, play, uh, inventing phrases and words that have stuck in our imagination. Hamlet has fistfuls of them. The creative inspiration that must have been behind that must have been incredible. And, and the closest I get to really peering over Shakespeare's shoulder, the closest I got to Shakespeare and the whole experience of writing this book was watching him take his first draft of Hamlet and revise that draft, cutting famous soliloquy, uh, uh, changing characterization. You begin to really understand how Shakespeare wrote and rewrote because it wasn't a first draft. Shakespeare was a great reviser, and he understood what he had to cut, including a great soliloquy, to save his play. I want to also just quickly ask you about another device which Shakespeare uses so much in Hamlet, and this is this device of pairing two things together. Uh, Hendiades. Yes, uh, and th- this idea of one by means of two. Uh, linking two nouns with the simple word and. You talk about how this is used so much in, in Hamlet and that it speaks to something in, in the collective soul of England at this time, a longing to try to put things together and, and understand the world in which they were living. You know, I chose Hendiades almost arbitrarily as one rhetorical trope 
because Shakespeare's linguistic you know, prowess was, is unbelievable, and you can spend books just on the language of Hamlet. And here I was lucky to draw on the work of other scholars who had teased out and listed all of these. You know, hendiety sounds like a fancy word, but we know this word from uh, how it appears in our own culture, phrases like law and order, house and home, sound and fury. Uh, Shakespeare, uh, th- th- it's actually hard to use those phrases in, in, in poetry and in everyday speech uh, or invent them. And Shakespeare invents dozens of them in Hamlet. And these words exist, sound and fury, law and order, uh, as terms that modify another term but are really destabilized by their proximity to each other. And it, it creates that kind of unnerving feeling we get when we see or read a play like Hamlet. Uh, it, it's too hard to explain in a sentence or two, but what, what I'm trying to get at is Shakespeare is reaching another level of verbal complexity that no one really has reached before or would ever reach again. And these are the kind of things that I try to pinpoint as best I can to give readers a sense of not just how overwhelming Shakespeare's writing is, but how you can see its greatness in very particular ways. Hmm. You talk about how writing for Shakespeare was a battering experience, and I'm sure for you as well, to some extent, this had to be that kind of experience, exhaustive research over the course of many years, but the result is an absolutely marvelous book, again called A Year in the Life of William Shakespeare, 1599, published by HarperCollins, the author James Shapiro. James Shapiro, I congratulate you. This is something superb, and I'm glad we got to talk about it today. I'm very grateful for our conversation. Thank you very much.